Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I'm your host, Luisa Hallmeyer-Wacker. Let's get started with this week's episode. Precision medicine has the potential to transform healthcare. In previous episodes, we've talked about some of the technological advances like single cell sequencing and advanced proteomics that are accelerating a personalized approach to medicine. Both Sasha and I are very excited about what the future holds for diagnostics, treatment, and prevention of disease. But what does that future really look like? Who will benefit from precision medicine and who won't? These are questions I want to dive into with my guest today, Dr. Khadija Ferryman. Khadija is a cultural anthropologist whose research centers on the ethical dimensions of health risk technologies, especially as they relate to racial disparities in health. She's an industry assistant professor at NYU's Tandon School of Engineering, where she directs the ethics and technology curriculum. She's also an affiliate at the Data and Society Research Institute and at the Center for Critical Race and Digital Studies. Khadija, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I've personally been looking forward to this conversation for a while now, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, and I'm really happy to be on the podcast today. So your research has really centered around the ethical dimensions of health risk technologies. So Khadija, what first got you interested in that field? Yeah, so um, this is an interesting story. Um, I first became interested in uh, the ethics of health technologies actually quite by accident, I think. Um, I was um, at home and I was cleaning up and I had the, the TV on and on my TV screen flashed a commercial for Bidal. And Bidal was the first uh, drug uh, approved by the United States uh, FDA um, for a specific racial group. And so Bidal was a drug that was uh, approved specifically to treat heart disease um, in African Americans. And I remember seeing the commercial that was very well done, very slick production, as many kind of pharmaceutical uh, commercials are, and, you know, touting and kind of making this claim that this, this, this pill was for specifically for African Americans and, and heart disease. And I remember thinking, and I, I believe I was sweeping and I kind of stopped with the broom that I had. And I thought, well, how does that work? Um, because African Americans are a very specific, you know, ethnic group. Um, and, you know, does that mean that it works for um, African Americans? What about Africans? What about people who um, are of African descent in the, in the Caribbean? Okay, so do they really mean, you know, black as a racial group? And if they do, does this mean that they are the, the, the claim of this drug is that, um, African Americans, uh, you know, have a different kind of physiology that responds better to this drug. I just had so many questions about um, about this this drug and this claim that you know this particular you know there was this biologic that worked especially well for African Americans, and so that kind of led me down a path of really looking at the intersection between race and genomics. And that was really my first kind of foray. That's really where my interest in, in all of this started, right? So this is how I started to really ask questions like, well, how is health risk being defined for this particular group, <laughs> right? Um, and how that risk is defined really then impacts how treatments are being considered and marketed and, and researched, right? And so vital and, and as I, you know, 
dug further and did some more research into Bidal, I saw that it really was, despite the very slick production and this, you know, commercial, that it really was quite a contested drug and that there were many, many people who were really quite critical of Bidal and the some of the explicit and implicit claims um, about the distinctive, you know, physiology of heart disease in African Americans. And what was really particularly interesting about the the Bidal case is that there were um, there was support for Bidal um, from African Americans. So I believe it was an association of black cardiologists had um, endorsed the drug, but there were also many scholars of African descent, social scientists who were really, um, really, you know, critical and skeptical of the claims that that Bidal made. And, and, you know, when this was some years ago, this was early in my, um, in my grad school career. And as you know, more critical questions were raised about Bidal, things, um, you know, about the patent expiring and, and how, you know, the, the company uh, needed a way to continue to sort of market their product, even though their, um, their exclusive rights over the drug were going to expire. So there were, there was a lot to the, there was a lot to the Bidal story. Um, and like I said, it sort of led me down this path of sort of asking, asking questions about race, about health risk, about health risk, and how it was being framed in certain populations, especially as there were these sort of burgeoning fields of scientific research like genomics. Um, Over the years, my um, interest area has really expanded to other health risk technologies uh, in addition to genomics. Yeah, those are very interesting claims made by Bidal. I'm just wondering, do you know, um, is that drug still prescribed? Is it still marketed exclusively to um, African-Americans or how does the story end for Bidal? Yeah, so um, I actually don't know currently if Bidal is still if Bidal is still marketed exclusively to African-Americans. I know there were a number of social scientists, um, anthropologists in particular, who essentially wrote, you know, books about Bidal and how it this was an example of sort of conflating race with biology and what some of the the, the dangers of that are. Um, but honestly, in terms of prescribing now, I don't know if it's still I haven't seen any commercials for it <laughs> lately. Um, but I don't know if it is still I think that because it's now a generic drug, I don't think it's uh, still prescribed or talked about exclusively as uh, a drug for African Americans, but that could be, you know, an interesting uh, research question for someone to do some some good ethnographic research in the clinical space to see, you know, about a decade later now, even though uh, there are generics, etc., if there is still this association between this drug and and the idea that it has that it works especially well in African American communities. So, so I, I I don't know where the story ends for Vital right now, but that would be a great um, could be a potentially interesting research project yeah um that's definitely a very unique story um of uh, an interest that's formed through a commercial um and that kind of leads you down a path and an interest that ultimately led you to being a postdoctoral scholar who led a project on fairness in precision medicine so for our listeners For that study, you interviewed over 20 thought leaders in precision medicine. So um, as a podcaster, I must say that sounds like a fantastic opportunity. So what was that like? And what was the overall perspective on the promises uh, of precision medicine? Yeah, so... You know, like I said, I my initial uh, dissertation work was really looking at race and genomics. But even as I was doing my dissertation research, I kind of was seeing that because the Obama administration in the United States passed the High Tech Act, which led to this really rapid digitization of electronic health records. So all of a sudden, you know, within a very short time period in the U.S., we went from having paper records in most um, clinical spaces, doctor's offices, things like that, to widespread uptake in uh, kind of a widespread conversion and uptake of, of electronic health records. And so during that time, uh, people were really getting really excited about the, the potential for electronic health records to streamline clinical practices of documentation, but also with clinical data being digitized, that's also a research opportunity. Um, How could we potentially do in, quote unquote, in silico research projects by, uh, you know, mining electronic health records data or analyzing electronic health records data. So there was really this uh, kind of movement to um, an expansion of 
other kinds of health data during the same time, again, that I was working on my dissertation work, there was also the explosion of health apps, right? So in the beginning of my grad school experience in in 2007, there weren't really that many health apps. But by the end, right, health apps were nearly ubiquitous. So there were, again, also opportunities of, of, okay, how do we, how can we use this data? Yes, these are consumer data. They are used by private companies to collect data, but also for researchers who are interested in health, how could this data lend it insights as well? So I was really seeing this sort of coalescence of these emergent data forms and, and real excitement and investment in how we could use these new forms of data for research. So that's really how my, uh, my interest in, 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 in precision medicine sort of developed and how it relates and how it, it, how it kind of morphed into the Fairness and Precision Medicine Research Project is I, uh, I was a postdoctoral scholar at the Data and Society Research Institute in New York. And Data and Society was really on the vanguard of asking critical questions about data-driven, data-centric technology. So Data and Society was one of the first conveners of scholars asking critical questions about automation, about the use of AI, um, and really about big data. So that was sort of the the environment. And I knew that when I got to data and society that I wanted to ask the same kinds of critical questions, and critical in the sense of, you know, how do we understand the social and cultural impacts? How does this technology relate to social hierarchies and, and, and power systems, right? So I wanted to uh, use that opportunity to ask those same kinds of questions about health technology. So at the time when I got to Data and Society, which was in 2016, like I said, they, Data and Society had been at the vanguard of asking these questions about big data, but there was really not yet those kinds of questions being asked about health data, right? So Data and Society was asking questions about data used in, in policing and crime data and things like that, but there really wasn't much on health data. And, you know, it's, it's different, right? Because crime data, I think we can see the value perhaps more readily in, in why we should be critical or skeptical or ask critical questions about crime data. But with health data, because it is this field, right, where um, people are, you know, using health data or wanting to research health data because they're clinicians or they're researchers or they're scientists and they want to do good, right? This isn't a field. Um, this is not, you know, crime data where you can, um, you, you, it doesn't take much to sort of um, imagine how the use of that data could potentially go wrong. Um, and I felt, and along with my um, co-author, Michaela Pitcan, we thought, you know, even though there are many good intentions um, in this field to use this data, it's still important to ask these critical questions now, right? Because good intentions may not be enough because what we're seeing in some of the other fields where collecting and analyzing these, these big data, if we were seeing that if you don't ask these kind of questions at the outset, there can be negative impacts, particularly on marginalized groups. You know, we really wanted to ask those questions uh, really before precision medicine research sort of got off the ground. And it wasn't, you know, it was a little bit tough to kind of ask that question, right? Because there was, the, it is this field that, and especially at the time where people, there was a lot of kind of promise and hope, right? And and, and sometimes my, you know, my co-author and I felt like, okay, maybe we're, you know, sort of the Debbie Downers here asking these questions about how precision medicine could go wrong before it even uh, gets going. But as I, you know, just to reiterate, we felt like it was really important because because there there is so much potential for uh, these data sources to do good in something like health, which is so important that it made it even more essential for us from our point of view to begin to ask these hard critical questions, you know, now or at the time in 2016. So that's how we kind of framed out this uh, research study. And we tried to talk with people from different sectors. We tried to talk with, with people who, who were researchers who were working on big precision medicine research studies. We spoke with people who were involved in research and on the government sector. We talked with people who were doing precision medicine research on the on the private side and in kind of industry. We talked with people who were actually um, using the data themselves. So we talked with uh, software engineers who build health data models um, and, and, and sort of got that experience. We talked with some patients who have had experience sort of uh, using their own data to advance their health and, and the health of their communities. Um, so we really tried to speak with people who are sort of differently situated to get a sense of not just the promise, 
but the potential pitfalls of precision medicine as well. And I want to dive into some of those pitfalls uh, in a second. But before we do that, before we, as you just said, are maybe a bit of Debbie Downers, I just, what was the overall feeling for the promise of personalized medicine? What did you take away uh, from those thought leaders on how they see the future? Yeah, so there were a few things. So the first, and this relates back to some of the comments that I already made, there was a lot of excitement and still is around the potential for multidimensional data, right? So people who we spoke to were really excited for the potential not to just analyze electronic medical records, which, you know, that's interesting as well, and not to just analyze genomics, but to bring those together um, to see how they could bring together genomics data with EHR data, with data from wearables and apps, and see what kinds of insights could be gathered if we could bring these relatively new forms of data together, right? So there was and still is a lot of excitement in just the availability of these different kinds of data and, and what, what kinds of new insights can be gleaned by bringing those together. And then, of course, at the same time, right, there's this kind of resurgence in advanced data analytics, right? So combined, so coupled with these new data, these new forms of data, like the data from wearables and apps and internet of medical things devices, plus, again, this other new form of data from electronic health records, plus from genomics, which is, you know, relatively new, I think we can still, it would still be fair to, to characterize that as a new data form. So not only was there the excitement for those new forms of data, there was excitement for how we could bring them together and analyze them and how uh, some of these analytics tools that were themselves sort of really developing and, and, and being put to different use, right? How those data could now feed these models themselves that are getting more advanced. So there was a, there was and still is a lot of excitement for that aspect of precision medicine. So that's one, that's sort of on the like data, data gathering and data analysis side. Um, we also spoke to um, a number of people who were really excited about the potential for precision medicine research. Um, and again, relating to this idea that there is sort of uh, this ability to collect uh, new forms of data and data at volume that, you know, previously wasn't possible. And so there were a number of people who felt like, you know, with this big data, we may be able to finally make some headway on addressing health disparities, right? Maybe we can see when we bring these disparate data forms together, maybe we can uh, identify some really interesting insights and, and provide uh, some get to some really interesting leads that we can follow um, that can help us address health disparities, right? So, um, so people were really interested in the in the promise of of these new data and and uh, these data analysis tools to you know perhaps give us a, a new way to investigate or some new insights on on health disparities. Yeah, a lot of the points you've mentioned, we've uh, or I can say that I've also heard from experts I've talked to. In terms of that excitement around data, around data analytics, um, and what we can do with that data potentially in the future. We are doing this show for you, and your feedback is very important for us. So if you have any suggestions or comments, would like us to cover a specific topic, or recommend a guest, please write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. Or you can reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To download the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's p-m-e-d-c-a-s-t dot com. The show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work, and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. Make sure to check them out. And don't miss the next episode. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a rating and leave a comment. It will help us make this show better. And now, let's get back to the interview. So, 
I think before we dive into the findings um, of the initial uh, fairness and precision medicine study uh, of data and society that you performed, why is it important to think about bias um, in this field that is still developing? Uh, why is it so important to do it uh, in the beginning and not once the field is more established and we actually know what we are going to do with the data sources and how it's going to impact healthcare in the long term? Yeah, that's a great question. And it very closely mirrors uh, some of the responses that we got from uh, from people who we reached out to to be part of the study. And, you know, not everyone that we reached out to uh, decided to uh, participate in the study for um, for some sentiments like that, that felt like, you know, it's it's too early to be asking these kinds of questions. The field isn't established. We don't know. We don't know yet. But for us, it was really important to be proactive with these kinds of questions rather than reactive. And we felt that even though the story was still being written about precision medicine, that it was important to ask the questions now that even the act of us asking these kinds of questions to people who are active uh, clinicians, our active researchers, our active software engineers, that even that act of asking the question would potentially um, prompt them to reflect on their work, on the kinds of questions that they're asking, on the, on the kinds of work um, that they're working on that could, um, that could kind of help shift the direction of precision medicine or sort of make sure that it sort of stays on a path where questions of bias and the potential for discrimination are sort of addressed at the outset. So so for us, it was really important to be proactive rather than reactive. And the other thing too is, you know, even though we did this study and asked these questions and start, we started this work around 2017. Um, and like I said, there wasn't much other kind of research out there asking these kinds of questions. There was actually already um, some evidence of negative consequences actually already happening. So even we weren't proactive enough, right? So one of the things that prompted us again to really think about this was there was uh, a, an article published by uh, Zach Kohaney from Harvard Med School and his group there where they looked at, and this was just based on genomics, but they looked at um, a precision, uh, a, a sort of early version of, of clinical precision medicine based on genomics. And there was a variant that was misclassified as, as pathogenic, um, or it was classified as pathogenic, but that's because the research um, that had been done to categorize that variant as as possibly pathogenic was didn't include a, uh, a kind of diverse group. So when people of African descent were brought in tested for this genetic variant, they were told and went and if they had this variant, they were told that they um, that they had this likely pathogenic variant, and then they, you know, were brought in and did sort of follow up studies, and then were later cleared, but it really revealed that, you know, precision medicine, even in this very early in this very early kind of demonstration, wasn't working as well for black people as it was for others. So for us, you know, we were already feeling like we're starting to see some of the potential negative consequences, particularly from marginalized groups already happening. So it's, it's really important to start asking these questions now. And, you know, it's been really encouraging for us to see that, um, you know, when we did our report, there weren't any op-eds or anything about AI and bias. And since 2018, when our work has come out, you know, now there have been several uh, op-eds and uh, research, you know, articles in, in major uh, medical journals and things like that, raising this issue of particularly looking at AI and where there can be potential for bias and discriminatory outcomes in general, but particularly for marginalized groups. So we, we're, we're happy that we, you know, even though for some, it seemed a little bit premature that we decided to sort of go ahead and, and ask those questions when we did. Yeah, and I think that's a good transition to my next question, which is, what were the findings? Um, and I, I would like to discuss that with you maybe in two parts, um, because you identified two main types of bias within the study, one being uh, bias in the data sets and the other one being bias in the outcomes. Um, and I found reading the report extremely insightful 
um, and would therefore really like to dive into each one of them separately. So maybe first on the bias and the data sets. So as we've already discussed and as you've already mentioned, there was and still is this excitement around this increasing amount of health data from all these different channels that is collected electronically. And many researchers see a lot of potential in mining that data. So um, what are some of the biases that you found in terms of how we collect and then examine these electronic health records in databases? Yeah, so that's a, a great question. So again, we were, um, I was doing this research as part of my postdoctoral um, position at Data and Society. And Data and Society um, had kind of brought together researchers who were looking at one of the big issues that had um, surfaced was what we can think of as sort of inherent data bias, right? So the one example that um, uh, people may be familiar with is the Compass uh, uh, recidivism risk algorithm and um, how it was biased against Black defendants because it used one of the data sources was this questionnaire that asked things like, when was the first time you had an interaction with law enforcement and be due to the, the to racialized policing in the US that um, your answer to that of when you were first in contact with law enforcement is going to be different based on your racial group, not because of your predisposition for criminality. But that response was used as kind of an indicator in that algorithm for, you know, increased criminality, increased risk. So what we wanted to do was sort of see if we could ask questions about the um, inherent data bias in some of these new forms of health data. And when we asked that question, one of the major findings was that electronic health data in particular was problematic for a number of reasons. There were a number of ways that electronic health data could have um, what we can think of as inherent data biases. And one, um, and this is something that we heard from one of our, uh, from our patient advocates was that, you know, there, on the one hand, there was this excitement for using EHR data for doing these in silico research studies, right? Hey, we may not have to run a big, expensive, you know, randomized controlled trial, we can actually just pull data from the EHRs and analyze them and get insights that way. And our, our respondents pointed us to a number of things. So one, you know, they said that um, not everyone's uh, electronic health records look the same. Some people's health records are uh, missing or have or are or are fragmented. Um, and that has to do with, you know, various things like insurance coverage, uh, like other socio demographic kind of factors. And so um, if we're just, you know, sort of looking at uh, data quality, if you will, or the data that's available about individuals um, in those records, they're not they're not consistent, right? So that's that's one thing. Another thing that uh, that came out from from some of those um, from that research was um, how some of the biases that we see in society in general, but particularly in clinical settings, could be evident in electronic health data as well, right? So um, might we see uh, as you're pulling that data, sort of differences in treatment that don't necessarily recommend differences in treatment and, or differences in outcome. Again, having representing kind of a difference in access that people might have to healthcare access to differences in treatment. So that was another potential source of bias. Another was um, uh, questions of sort of who was doing that data interpretation. So with the with the compass example, right, one of the reasons that that particular model was biased was because that particular um, questionnaire was used and without uh, knowing the history and background of asking the question about when you had, when did you first have contact with law enforcement, right? That would seem like a perfectly fine variable to, to include. What we learn by doing some of the research is that, uh, some of the software engineers and, and, um, others who were using these new forms of health data and building predictive models, you know, they, some, many of them didn't have clinical experience. Some of them were kind of really uh, interpreting the data based on their own experiences, worldviews, backgrounds. But of course, once that model is developed and used, it appears to be something that's, you know, something that's objective, an objective kind of totally neutral model. And so it was really important for us to 
highlight that as a potential area of bias, right? So we were really trying to, again, because this was a sort of proactive uh, kind of research, right? We didn't say, okay, ha ha. And in our uh, research, we found that these particular variables in, in EHRs or these particular fields in EHRs are biased against this group versus, versus another. But when we talked and heard about these, um, heard about these processes of data collection, of data cleaning and data analysis, we really thought it was important to sort of highlight how, you know, human interpretation um, plays a role and that these, the choices that are made about what data are used and how these models are built um, really do reflect, you know, human, um, human interpretation and human, uh, human uh, positionality on, on these issues. So that was one of the main uh, kind of findings from when we were just thinking about the data collection and, and analysis. The other, which um, I think it was important for us to highlight, but wasn't a particularly novel finding, was that the kinds of data that could be included in these uh, highly advanced uh, models would not just be data from EHRs, but would also be things like clinical trials data. And we know clinical trials data in the US is very, very biased, very skewed, does not represent, is not representative of the US population. And so if that data was brought into these models, that that could be another potential source of, of bias. And it relates to the earlier comments about the promises, right? So one of the promises that we heard or the potential was bringing these multiple uh, data sources together to perhaps identify new insights. But with each of these data sources, clinical trials, genomics data, EHR data, it was really important to, um, to highlight that each one of these data sources has their own uh, kinds of biases, their own kinds of limitations. And it was really important to identify those because once they were brought together and then cleaned and analyzed and, and used in a model, you know, could we peel the layers of the onion back and be able to see where where there could be bias or how this model, you know, why this model may be working um, less well for some groups than than for others. So that's the that's the the, the sort of data collection and, and and analytics piece. Yeah. And then the other piece was the bias and outcomes. Um, so what are some of the biases that you identified um, that can result from precision medicine research? Right. And so this is the, this is the, these findings are, are important as well, especially because, like I said, when we were doing this work, there was, you know, there was some activity around asking these kinds of questions, but not much. And even now, even as there has been more attention overall to the potential pitfalls from big data, from big data analytics, there's been a lot of attention, which has been good on problems with data on and on inherent problems with data and with data bias. And I think within that growing field, there's sort of more of a, of a, of a scholarly and public, you know, growing understanding around, okay, data is not neutral. Um, data can be, um, data can have these biases in there. But the, the downside, um, or, I, or I should say one potential limitation of highlighting data biases is that you could take that to mean, okay, well, once we fix these data biases, all we need to do is just get really good data. And once we get bias-free data, you know, we'll be fine. And we can continue to make our models and, and do our advanced analytics and everything will be great. Um, but there are two things wrong with that. So one is that all data is, is going to have a bias, right? So there's no way to sort of get away from totally free bias-free data. And the other thing wrong with that is that it assumes that, you know, once we have data that's, let's say, totally representative of uh, demographic groups, once we have that, then that means our models are going to be fine and there aren't going to be negative social impacts. And that's not true. And that's what our second set of findings was about, right? Was that, okay, let's say all of these problems with data bias, let's call it that we've identified were to be solved. Would that mean that, you know, there wouldn't be anything of, of to be concerned about with precision medicine? And that's not, that's, that's not what we found. And so some of the things that we highlighted when we talked about, you know, the potential for, for negative in impacts in terms of the, um, the use of precision medicine is sort of like, well, you know, could could the could the use of precision medicine tools again kind of exacerbate 
um, existing health disparities exacerbate existing forms of discrimination. And that's why it was really important to us to include, um, to ask those kinds of questions and and to include those those findings in our report as well. And so one, um, and there's more in the report, but one to just sort of highlight is that one of the findings that we've talked about is that, you know, insights of, of, let's say, health risk models are really important. And let's say there's great data that's used to build a model to show, you know, not just because of biology, but due to multiple factors, a kind of social biological method that this particular group is more uh, predisposed to health outcome X. And so that could be great. It may not be, it, it may not, you know, link again to a biological view of race, of, of race. It could say that it's, you know, because of a social factor, but it still would be highlighting, let's say, an increased risk with a particular group. We don't know. There's no guarantee and our history doesn't kind of guarantee for us that knowing that there are, there's an increased risk in an increased health risk in a certain group will put, you know, will automatically be used for the health improvement of that group will automatically be used to uplift and, and, uh, and improve the health of that group, right? So we talked about how that health risk information, again, raising this question of the potential of that kind of information being used against groups that are already marginalized, that are already facing uh, health disparities, right? The hope is that if we were able to get to these more tailored, uh, you know, subgroup even sort of insights and on the um, causes of disease that that would be used, of course, to construct, you know, very sophisticated, you know, clinical and public health and other kinds of uh, responses. But, you know, it could, we, we I think it, it would be irresponsible to not also raise and say that if we know that or if a health risk for a specific group is identified, that would be irresponsible to um, not consider that that could be used, that kind of information could be used against that group and could be used to further discriminate against that group. So that's why for us, it was really important to um, to ask those kind of kinds of questions to ask about outcomes, because we really didn't want to get into that uh, reductionist frame of we just need to fix the data. And once we fix the data, and if we get the data right, um, and the models right, then everything will be okay. Because those models are still employed in a society where there are uh, existing hierarchies, existing stereotypes, existing patterns of marginalization and discrimination. And so these models, even if they could be kind of quote unquote accurate, could be used again without, if we're not very, very careful, it's very easy for them to slot into those already um, existing patterns of, of marginalization. Yeah, I think that, I mean, what I think is very interesting is this this reminder to keep on thinking about how data can potentially amplify existing bias um, or forms of discrimination. And then on the other hand, just because data is complete or in an ideal world, because data is even... Um, even accurate, that doesn't solve existing forms of discrimination in the healthcare system. Um, so, and I'll make sure to link uh, in our show notes to the entire um, fairness in precision medicine report, uh, because there are some great quotes from people you interviewed as well, and just a lot more detail on what you've been talking about. And I uh, would encourage all our listeners uh, to have a look at that. So one of the things that you've touched on and something that's a hot topic at the moment is artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, and they have been kind of proposed as an enhancement in many fields of medicine, maybe even as a way to circumvent some of the biases that humans might have when they look at clinical data. Um, so I know you've done a bit of research on that. So what have you found in regards to bias when it comes to artificial intelligence and machine learning? Yeah, so that's a great question. And this, the, the rationale of thinking about artificial intelligence and machine learning in, um, and its use in the clinical space to um, overcome human biases is is um, you know is an important rationale, and we and we've also heard that rationale for uh, for the use of AI and and machine learning in in other fields as well in in 
again, I'm kind of going back to the criminal justice example, um, when uh, thinking about um, sentencing, right, that we there, it's very well documented that human judges um, are biased against um, are biased, are biased against racial minorities, are biased against marginalized groups, right? So that an AI tool seems like a, a, a good way to get around that already known, already um, well-documented human bias. Um, but the problem, of course, is, is what we've been talking about uh, throughout the interview is that these um, AI and machine learning tools themselves are also human products and also bear um, many of the same biases that humans do, right? So it's not a, uh, it's not a way to sort of totally get away from uh, the real life biases that we know. And if we think about it in a, in a human, uh, in a, in a clinical context, excuse me, one of the, a, a great example that I, I love to bring up comes from Dr. Dorothy Roberts. She is a, a law scholar who's been writing for, for decades about racism in clinical context and has written about, uh, genomics and other emerging technologies and how those exacerbate existing forms of marginalization and discrimination. And one of the stories that, um, that she tells in, in one of her books is of a, of a case in, I believe it was in the United Kingdom, of a child who was being seen, had a, had a respiratory illness. And, you know, the doctors, they, they couldn't, they couldn't, you know, figure out what was wrong with her. They were trying different treatments and, you know, she just wasn't really responding. And so her condition was, was not getting better. They, and they had taken, you know, x-rays of her lungs. And um, one day, uh, someone, they had, you know, an x-ray of her lungs up on, you know, in an, in an area, I guess they kind of used to do this. I don't know if they still do, do this in clinical context now. But another physician who was walking by who didn't, who didn't know who this was and saw the x-ray up on the wall, looked at it and said, oh, um, who's the new CF, cystic fibrosis? Um, case. And it was this kind of moment where the light bulb went off because the child in this case was black. And because the child was black, their clinicians, her clinicians didn't even consider that she would have cystic fibrosis because that's a respiratory uh, condition that's more uh, common in people of European ancestry. But once the, the, you know, the, the child wasn't in front of the clinician, right, someone just walking by and looking at their at looking at her x ray, you know, diagnosed it immediately as CF. And so then, of course, you know, she was diagnosed and, and her, you know, she gained treatment. But that's an example that Dorothy Roberts has has used to say, you know, there is uh, human bias in clinical, you know, in spaces as well. And this is something that we have to reckon, you know, reckon with that this is real. So of course that, that is real. And so um, again, thinking of kind of promise and potential, you know, there is kind of promise and potential for AI tools to perhaps mitigate some of that, you know, documented um, clinical bias that we see uh, in, in healthcare. But I think we have to be really careful about, um, uh, about how much we think those kinds of tools can get us away from the, the bias that sort of already exists, because as I said before, these tools are built by people. Um, and they're built by people. And even if they are built, again, with uh, quote, unquote, unbiased data, or with data that's perfectly, uh, you know, demographically representative, and the tool works the way that it should, it still goes into the clinical context where there are certain patterns that are present. And in um, an article that I um, recently, um, that I wrote, it's not out quite for publication yet, but I, I discuss the, the FDA, the first AI tool that the FDA um, approved for clinical use is a tool that detects uh, eye disease. And so um, detecting eye disease, a, a specialist needs to do it. Um, and it's an eye disease that's associated with diabetes. And diabetes is a very common condition here in the US and abroad, but a, a very common in the US. And um, there are there are also disparities within um, racial and ethnic minority groups in this country um, in their, you know, instances and outcomes in diabetes. So um, having this automated diagnosis tool that could be used in primary care and not, you know, in a specialist office could really have a lot of potential to um, mitigate some of the health disparities that we see in um, diabetic 
kind of related eye diseases. And this tool has been trained with good data. It's able to sort of um, recognize uh, eye conditions kind of across groups pretty well. It's something known as kind of equal performance in the in the machine learning field. And so that's great, right? Um, so the model itself could work very well and could work equally across groups. However, we still have to consider that um, in that, that there has been, you know, there's well-documented research that clinicians just don't offer um, Black patients in particular screening tools at the same rates that they do their white patients. So even though they might have this AI tool that works very well, is not biased, doesn't have biased, you know, tools, has doesn't have, you know, biased data, is equal, uh, you know, has great equal performance rates, that they just still may not offer it as often to their black patients, right? And so that doesn't have to do with how the ML works. It's just this is this is you know what unfortunately um, uh, happens sometimes in in clinical domains. So so that is what um, you know I think is is another part of this that that it's really important to to keep thinking about and keep asking questions and sort of raising that issue when especially when we're thinking about these data centric technologies, right? It's it's in the there. The data is a concern, and I think it's really important for us to to make sure that we get these the as high quality data as we can, as representative data as we can, you know, um, as accurate models as we can. But we also have to recognize that these models are being deployed in um, in these 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 clinical spaces and in these kind of in our social world. So I think you touched on something really important here, which is that um, artificial intelligence and machine learning still have a human component to them, either in terms of the programming of the algorithms, uh, but then also how those are actually used in clinical practice. Khadija, one last question, which is on how you see fairness in precision medicine in the future. So the report on fairness in precision medicine was released in 2018. So two years later, have you seen any changes or progress around fairness in precision medicine? And based on that, how do you see the future of this field? Yeah, so um, after our report came out in 2018, we have been really encouraged to see national uh, opinion pieces on artificial intelligence and uh, health disparities, um, arti artificial intelligence and the potential for it to exacerbate um, disparities in health and that it may not be the, uh, you know, the silver bullet for, um, for medical care overall, overall or for, you know, addressing um, uh, health disparities. So that has been really encouraging to sort of see this as a conversation um, that's being raised on the on the national level. So in in that sense, that is really encouraging. There are a lot of great um, researchers in um, technical fields and in the social science fields who are doing some really really great work um, looking at these kinds of issues. So a colleague of mine, Marzia Gassimi, at the University of Toronto, and some of her colleagues there are doing some really interesting. She's a computer scientist doing some really um, really excellent, really interesting work looking at um, how we can see bias in um, in health data, particularly in EHRs and even in things like clinical notes, in clinicians' notes, right? How we can, and if we were to use the data from clinicians' notes to build a model, that those models would not work as well for uh, for different for different groups, right? So we're seeing this, um, uh, this on the, the technical side, we're also seeing uh, people in public health, like my colleague, Elaine and Soasi, you know, looking at uh, data from a public health uh, data and data analytics from a public health standpoint. So can we use uh, data from Twitter data from Yelp, uh, to, again, sort of not just track disease, but sort of highlight health disparity. So there's a, there's a lot of really interesting um, work being done. Um, in in people in sort of multiple fields addressing this issue. And so to me, that's really encouraging to see, um, like I said, the sort of national conversations about this happening, but also the, the increased research about this from multiple multiple disciplines. So that's, that's really great and really encouraging. And, you know, for me, as I think about the sort of broader potential impacts of, of precision medicine, and whether it can make an impact on health disparities and health equity, I think the only way for that to 
really happen is if we continue to situate and contextualize these technologies within the um, social and cultural uh, context of these you know, of medicine, essentially, right? And if we continue to sort of um, uh, keep at the forefront that uh, medical care, medical uh, spaces are not, um, they're different, but they're in some ways not distinct from the patterns that we see in uh, broader society, especially in the US. And so I think if we really keep that at the forefront and continue to, as we develop these tools, right, continue to, to see them as human productions, as reflections of our society um, itself, and keep asking these hard questions about them, then I think we can really uh, see how these tools could become really powerful and could become really useful. And I think, you know, when I talked earlier about uh, how the people developing, let's say, doing, developing these models, right, uh, have different kinds of experiences that, that um, uh, are very specific, I think, the more that we can bring in multiple perspectives, bring in researchers from multiple disciplines from multiple backgrounds, bring in patients, bring in community to include their uh, voices, their opinions, their comments, their knowledge on these tools and how they should be developed, how they will be deployed. Um, then I think these tools could uh, be a really powerful and positive force um, in healthcare in the future. Thank you, Khadija, for this very insightful interview. It's been really great learning about your research um, thus far and uh, hearing about your, your findings on bias in precision medicine um, and also your perspectives of the future uh, and what we have to work on um, to make sure that uh, precision medicine, um, as it moves forward, is as equitable um, and as non-biased as it can be. Um, before we end today's interview, um, how can the audience reach out to you uh, and learn a little bit more about your research? Yeah, so um, the great thing about uh, Data and Society is that our research is um, available, widely available to the public. So everyone can go to the Data and Society website and download um, our full precision medicine, fairness and precision medicine report, as well as a short primer that we did, um, just giving a little bit of background and history on personalized medicine and precision medicine. So that's freely available. Um, you can also... Um, uh, you know, just kind of search Google search me and find some of my publications um, and some more information about my research. I'm also um, at uh, at NYU. I'm also on Twitter. So you can find me on Twitter just at um, Khadija Ferryman. So so yeah, so there's definitely um, ways to uh, to get access to information and, and, and be in, in contact. Yes. So we'll make sure to link to those. Uh, thank you, Khadija, for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast online, and make sure to share it with a friend. And don't miss out on the next episode yourself. Subscribe to the Personalized Medicine Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, and many more. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. Our show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work, and recommendations for additional reads on the topics of the episode. Engage with us on social media, where we share news and exciting content on personalized medicine. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook by typing in Personalized Medicine Podcast or using our handle pmedcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest for the show, write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. Have a great day and until next time.